You're listening to the You Mentor Talk Show. I'm your host, Fatima Al-Sayed. On this weekly talk show, we usually invite speakers to take us through their journeys as professionals in their fields. If you have any questions for our panelists, you can always ask them live during the actual show, or you can also ask questions before the show on the Emoja app through the Inspire platform or directly on YouTube. On next week's show, we have the Community Voice Show, and we will be hearing from the Shia Racial Justice Coalition. On today's show, we welcome Insiaz. Assalamualaikum, Insia. How are you? I'm Sam. I'm good. How are you? I'm very doing very well. Um, Insia is a second-year law student at the University of Texas School of Law. In her time as a law student, she has been involved with many pro bono projects focusing on criminal justice, special education, and immigration. She's also a board member at the American Muslim Bar Association, where she's involved in legal advocacy and policy work surrounding issues affecting Shia Muslims, both domestically and abroad. She's going to tell us more about all the work she's doing because there's just so much, um, and she's very early on in her career, which is amazing, mashallah. Um, so we're excited to have her on today. Thank you so much. It's really exciting to be able to share a lot with y'all today, hopefully. Inshallah. Um, so first of all, how is it in Texas? Is everything better for you? Um, yeah, no. I mean, it was a weird week for sure, but things have stabilized. Of course, a lot of community activists are still, you know, getting people water and things as they need them. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of power and water, things have stabilized. Alhamdulillah. So I know we've been all anxiously following um, everything that's going on there. So inshallah, everything can get a little bit better soon. Yep, inshallah. Um, so you're in your second year at law. First, what inspired you to get into law? It's actually kind of um, a funny and perhaps bad example story, um, but it was very <laughs> impulsive. Um, I did not know what I wanted to do. I, mm -hmm. like many brown kids, was like, oh, I'm going to go to med school, of course. And then I got into high school, realized I sucked at chemistry. I like couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, and so I was kind of floating around looking for something that would be a good fit. And I got involved with the mock trial team at my school and something about that just, I don't know, spoke to me, like the ability to go through a case and really work on presenting an argument on behalf of your client was something I fell in love with. And to this day, it's it's the reason that I love being a law student and hopefully mm -hmm. a future lawyer as well. So I decided when I was a junior in high school that I was going to go to law school. Um, and in the moment, my parents were like, oh, she's going to change her mind again. Like she does that every couple of days. Um, but I mean, it's been six or seven years now and I haven't changed my mind yet. So that's amazing. Um, when you first were part of that mock trial, did you think, oh, this is how, like, this is how it's always going to be. This, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> I definitely um, thought that. <laughs> Um, I think the, the big shock was when I went to law school and I realized that wasn't, you know, your day to day. You don't always get a case that you get to zealously take to trial. Instead, mm -hmm. a lot of the work is done behind the scenes. And I think initially that was a huge culture shock for me. Um, but I think through law school, I've learned different ways to kind of use that advocacy and be involved with clients. So I've kind of been able to channel that passion in a different direction. And you've been involved in so much, uh, so much, like so much pro, pro bono work very early on, um, even though you're still in your second year. How did you uh, go about getting those opportunities? Um, and can you tell us a bit more about them? Yeah, for sure. Um, so a lot of it does come through the law school. Um, UT is great at providing very diverse opportunities for mm -hmm. students, which I've always really appreciated. Um, I think beyond that, just being very active in the community and seeing who needs help and when and just being able to try new things, even though you may not feel comfortable with them quite yet. Um, just being, I guess, at, at the core of it is being open to the opportunities that present themselves either through the law school or through community mm -hmm. connections. 
Um, so that's kind of how that's happened over time. Um, and can you tell us a bit about the juvenile work that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so over the summer, I worked at the Lone Star Justice Alliance that does appeals for individuals who were incarcerated um, when they were juveniles and are serving life sentences. Mm -hmm. um, so there's been recent jurisprudence from the Supreme Court that has changed how juveniles are sentenced in this country and what sorts of sentences they're eligible for. Um, and so in light of that jurisprudence, there are multiple organizations across the country looking at individuals who are incarcerated as juveniles and have served you know, 30, 40, 50 years in prison um, mm -hmm. and trying to get them resentenced and hopefully released. And presently, what else are you working um, with other than the uh, Muslim American Muslim Bar Association? Yeah, so at the moment, um, I'm working at CARE out of D.C. in their Civil Rights Division um, and at the Southern Center for Human Rights, where most of my work is focused on criminal justice and policy mm -hmm. issues. Um, so those are the two main things right now. And then I've got random um, subsidiary things floating around that kind of come and go over time. How does uh, someone go about, you know, actively pursuing different um, opportunities within law uh, very early on, um, you know, for different law students or someone who's right now starting out, um, how can they really take on those opportunities? I think as a law student, the most important thing is just to be open to whatever's presented to you. Um, you may not necessarily be interested in the subject matter right out of the gate, but I think every pro bono opportunity provides you something that you can learn. Um, so for example, like special education is not necessarily my focus or my long-term goal, but I'm involved in a long-term special education case. And through that, I've learned a lot more about how governmental structures and CPS and schools interact all together. And I think that interaction of government's really important as a law student, just to understand as, as a preliminary matter. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely think like not closing yourself off or boxing yourself into a particular set of issues, but rather being really open to all the different things that are presented to you and being willing to try them out. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes with everything, right? You know, yeah. always being open and trying to try different things. Uh, have you tried things that you didn't necessarily like, but they led to different opportunities that were better? Yeah. Um, so last year I did a lot of random clinics that just kind of came across my desk. I did like an art clinic where I <laughs> advised somebody about like copyright law. And I'll tell you, I did not enjoy that. Um, <laughs> copyright confuses me. I've done like securities work that just kind of flies over my head. Unfortunately, I was, I was not a business major. I don't mm -hmm. know your math or anything really. Um, so those things I think were difficult in the moment, but it did teach me a lot about one, the things I didn't want to do. And also just how to deal in a situation when you have a project that you're not super passionate about, but you really do need to get the work done and really still showcase the other skills you have in terms of research and writing, mm -hmm. and being able to make those legal arguments. So I think all in all, good experience. But in the moment, I, I was a little disgruntled. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you want to specialize in criminal law, from my understanding, right? Yeah, I mean, next, what comes next after law school is just such a blur for me. I feel like I've done so many things um, mm -hmm. as, an under, as an undergrad and as a law student that I really enjoyed. Criminal law is one area I'm particularly passionate about just because I think it's the type of thing that the more you learn about it, the more you realize how much injustice there is. Mm -hmm. And it's the type of thing that like keeps you up at night because you sit there thinking about the way that this country has just leaned into retribution and incarceration mm -hmm. as a way that, you know, really at the at the end of the day is at the expense of minority communities. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's the type of thing that I hope to focus on, um, you know, in the coming years, hopefully if I make it to the bar exam and as a real lawyer one day. Inshallah. Um, I'm sure you will. Uh, one thing that comes to mind, actually, when you're actually two things come to mind. So first, um, as a Muslim, 
going into criminal law. Did you hear a lot of different backlash from the community telling you, you know, you shouldn't do this? Um, it's haram. It's. <laughs> yeah. you tell us about those experiences. A lot. Generally, even when I was just thinking about becoming a lawyer, I heard again and again, oh, no, you're going to have to become a liar if you're going to do this career. Mm -hmm. Like Just right out of the gate, um, I was told not to do it. So I think, you know, on one level, I really had to trust that I was making the right decision, um, just in law school generally. Mm -hmm. um, and what, Funnily enough, I told my grandfather I was going to law school. And the first thing he told me was like, do anything you want but don't do criminal law. <laughs> the moment I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, he passed away a few years ago. And I, since then I made the decision to kind of shift my focus mm -hmm. to criminal law because he passed away before I started law school. So I didn't actually get to share with him my epiphany and trans transformation, I would say. Mm -hmm. So I um, I sometimes feel guilty because I'm like, I know he, don't, he doesn't want me to do this, but I think I kind of go back to the idea. And in some ways I also explain this to my family members is that Islam talks so much about oppression and injustice, so yeah. much. Like, I mean, look at Ashura, like the, the epitome of that lesson for us in a lot of ways is these principles of how oppression should be spoken out against. And there shouldn't be this element of fear in us. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at the actual realities of the criminal justice system, it's so riddled with oppression and injustice. Like, I think on a high level, we watch like um, like CSI or whatever those shows are. And we're mm -hmm. like, oh, yes, put the criminals away but we don't realize the realities of what the actual criminal justice system does and how it affects people. And so I think being more informed has allowed me to then inform my um, my critics, I would say, about <laughs> why I'm doing it and why in a lot of ways it's rooted in religion rather than opposed to it. And that leads perfectly into my second question was, how did you find that balance between your religion and you know, the law and that system? I think at the end of the day for me, as especially as when I became a law student, I learned a lot more about roots as opposed to just surface level like practice. So I think in a lot of ways, like it required some introspection, like what are the roots of what I believe in and why do I believe in those things? Like if I believe in compassion and mercy, and I think those are parts of religion and forgiveness is a part of religion. How do I translate that to this like American context when I'm dealing with the law, right? Criminal justice, I feel like has this huge, pretty obvious connection to these elements of mercy and compassion and mm -hmm. justice, right? Being able to provide people not just punishment in a cage, but rehabilitation to make sure that the society as a whole is moving towards betterment, right? Because locking a person in a cage and then releasing them without any support or plan for re-entry is not an effective system. There's so much information out there about how this only leads to recidivism and creates generations of incarceration as opposed to betterment in society. So I think really for me, it was about finding the roots of what I believe in and really being able to understand them and then apply them in these different contexts that seemed disparate, but really in a lot of ways do connect. Mm -hmm. Wasn't um, the whole system, like the law system, built with that religious context from the beginning in mind? And now it's slowly shifting out of that, correct? Yeah. So especially um, in the colonial era, there was a lot of push, especially you know, from pilgrims who were coming religiously from England to create their legal codes based on religious practice. Um, so for mm -hmm. example, I'm sure you've heard a lot about the Salem witch trials, and that's one really prominent example of how religion and criminal law kind of collided and led to this um, to this event that's remembered throughout history as, in a lot of ways, a lot of oppression, right? Um, so yeah, I definitely would say that religion has been a part of this con this country's religious and you know criminal yeah. um, to like path from the beginning. Yeah. And at the foundation and core of everything that, you know, this country was built upon, um, which is interesting to see that move towards liberalism now yeah. um, and that shift away from anything religious. Right. 
Um, so for you in your classroom, um, I mean, I can speak from my own experiences in journalism school, which was my peers around me were like white students, um, white males who were challenging everything and anything that I would um, try to advocate for. Um, oftentimes assuming my beliefs and assuming what my stance would be on different issues. Um, does that happen to you within law school? And can you tell us more about that experience and how you overcome it? Law school is notorious for that kind of thing. Um, I think the white male counterpart thing is such a, 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 a like an epitome of, of what's going on in law school classrooms. Mm -hmm. And I think the other element or dynamic of it is that there are people who are what I call like generation lawyers, right? Um, and so their grandparents went to the same law school, their parents went to the same law school and they're at mm -hmm. that law school and they come from like lines and lines of lawyers. And I didn't know any lawyers before I went to law school. It was um, quite First a First generation. Exactly. Um. <laughs> um, the fact that I told my family I wanted to be a lawyer and everybody freaked out should be, mm -hmm. a, you know, good indication of that. Um, but I definitely think that the problem in the classroom is there are some students who are empowered because of their background or because of a sense of privilege to say whatever they want and really dominate the conversation. So like, for example, when we were in constitutional or criminal law, there's a lot of issues of racism in those classes. Like mm -hmm. you can read Dred Scott and that is a huge discussion point about racism and its history in our jurisprudence. Um, but generally like students who felt that privilege and that entitlement are much more inclined to jump in and make statements that quite frankly are racist and often sexist. And there's just very little, you know, bars to that. And I think the law school classroom, unfortunately, like how it's set up across the country really encourages and really allows for that to flourish. Mm -hmm. um, it's really sad because then, you know, my minority counterparts, be they like women or be they people of color, felt like they were kind of pushed in a corner and they couldn't say anything or advocate for the things that they believed in, which again is like a disservice to them and a disservice to discourse generally. And there's this floating idea of what the correct answer is going to be and what you should say. Right. And then when you go against that, they look at you like, oh, okay, you live in this other world that we no one knows about. Mm -hmm. um, so what advice do you have for someone who is going into law school and is going to live that shock? Because it it is really a shock. It's something that you have to sort of overcome and try to like strengthen yourself in order to be able to voice your opinions in a way that, you know, advocates for yourself, um, advocates for your community and advocates also for people of color. Yeah, I think there's a couple pieces of advice. The first is be prepared. Um, I was not prepared. And the the thought of a law school classroom, not even going to lie, like I almost quit. I week before law school started, I was like, I'm not going. I'm scared. Like I won't be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think just the, the general culture of like not being informed is a huge problem. So mm -hmm. I definitely tell all my mentees who are getting ready to apply to law school or getting ready to enroll to literally just find a law school in their city or nearby and just go visit and sit in a classroom and see what it's like. I think when you're prepared, you're much more inclined to then assert yourself, which kind of leads to my second piece of advice is like when you are in these situations, you should feel comfortable to assert yourself and just say what you believe in. Like at the end of the day, the reason the law school classroom was initially set up in the Socratic method was to encourage debate and encourage discourse. Yeah. So nobody's going to penalize you for doing that. Your professors should be encouraging that behavior. And honestly, if it's not happening, sometimes the onus is on you to just take that step and go ahead and say what you want to say and be assertive regardless of who is around you and who's kind of pressuring you to stay silent. And I think kind of my third piece of advice would be to be very firm in what you believe in. I mean, of course, everybody's beliefs are subject to change, but if you believe in something, you shouldn't feel embarrassed or ashamed of that. Rather, you should feel assertive enough to really make that claim and stand by it and not feel like you're going to be penalized for that. 
Mm-hmm. But I think those are things that take practice and take time. Like I'm still working on those things and I wish I could say I was better at them, but I'm not. And I think every person kind of goes through this journey in law school in particular to find that strength, just stand by your convictions. You know, other people can say what they want, but you kind of have to be that pillar and be that rock for yourself. Mm-hmm. And do you also feel that um, sense of responsibility towards uh, really showing who Muslims are, who females in hijab are, what hijab means, and being that, do you become like that person who's like the Muslim know-it-all? Um. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. I know, like when nine eleven comes up, everybody kind of turns and looks at me, and I'm like, oh. like I was like an, I was like a toddler, like calm down. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely feel that, and I think you know, beyond being substantively an expert, which I'm not, of course, but like even separate from that, I always feel like I have a responsibility to bring my view of Islam into the discourse. Like I took um, an Islamic law class this past semester in the fall. And a lot of it was like Sunni focused. And there's nothing wrong with discussing that viewpoint. But I think at a lot of times it was at the expense of minority Muslim communities. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, unfair. Like there's a huge world of jurisprudence out there that's just kind of being ignored. Um, So I would, I would be that annoying person who'd be like raising my hand, be like, I actually have a question and bringing up something about Shia jurisprudence that I thought was relevant. Because I think at the end of the day, like my obligation is not only to myself to make sure I'm discussing those things, but my colleagues who may not be from a Muslim background who are only being given one side of of a much larger and much more diverse equation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think kind of being, I'm sure many people were annoyed with me by the end of it, but I definitely was like trying to be that person to bring that into the discussion. I find that so inspiring because that's something that, you know, sometimes being that minority, it's not spoken about uh, much being that minority within Islam um, and really being in these fields. And you have these strong bases, you know, if it comes from our Ahlul Bayt or it comes from, you know, um, maybe the events of uh, Ashura, like you mentioned, like there's these strong, strong bases that we have and, you know, these role models that we have that we look up to that give us this um like sort of guide into how to go through um, different situations and the guide to just even, even the guide to the legal system and how justice, true justice should be. Um, So having that and that not being there and then being the person who is trying to advocate for that is truly inspiring. Um, Inshallah, all of your uh, efforts don't go in vain. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure they were annoyed with me by the end of the semester, but I did not stop. I was very respectful, but um, assertive, I would say. But trust me, everyone will be more aware and they'll come back later and they'll be like, you know, I remember that Shia student within my class who said, you know, this. And um, it it really is a, um, what's it called? That effect, the butterfly effect. <laughs> um, so what was the different dynamic? Uh, there, was there a dynamic shift between school and work? Yeah, um, I would definitely say at work, it's a lot more product focused. I think um, at school, you're focusing on doctrinal questions, talking in theory, um, kind of about the legitimacy of certain rulings and certain rules that come down from either the Supreme Court or, or any other court, really. Um, so I think in class, there's a lot more theoretical discussion, which opens up the door for some of this more invasive or intrusive type of behavior from other students. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think work is different. Work, you're focusing on an end product. You're on a timeline. You're you're there with a goal. You don't have time to waste in a lot of ways on these smaller, like, oh, I would almost say like some of these petty debates, right? Like you are focused on what you need to do, especially in the nonprofit context. Like you are focused on this end product. For example, like if you're working on a complaint, there's no time to sit there and debate the legitimacy of the laws surrounding hijab removal for incarcerees. Like mm-hmm. you have to write the complaints. You got to keep moving. There's no time to sit there and 
have this weird discussion that if it was in the classroom could get kind of ugly, right? Yeah. So I think that the dynamic shifts in terms of you're an actual lawyer and obviously you're a law student, but like your, your role is a real lawyer doing real work and you kind of have to keep on that path and you have to kind of, let, you know, filter out the noise that otherwise would be there. Something you said within our uh, pre-interview before the show, you mentioned one of Imam Ali's uh, sermons uh, about the frameworks of government. Can you mm -hmm. uh, tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, so I think one of the things that I really appreciated about that particular sermon um, talks about the framework of government and the way that he ran his government. So, you know, appropriately, because his Veladat was just um, a few days ago, yeah. <laughs> the idea there was less about a consolidation of power or control, but rather framing it in terms of the service that he's providing for the people, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that he is there to safeguard their rights and using that framework to then govern his actions and his government more broadly. And I think what really appealed to me about this discourse and this idea, and I mean, it's, it's prevalent in a lot of his different um, sermons and his letters, but in this one in particular, the thing I appreciated about it was that it speaks to how we as lawyers, I think, should approach a lot of these issues, right? I think a lot of times it's so tempting to just think about where we're going or what we want, but really framing it into your client's needs and your client's desires and what is best for them and their rights, I think helps you to contextualize your work more broadly and really provide work that's beneficial and productive. Mm -hmm. Is there any advice you can give to current high school or college students that could actually help them um, and either making a decision to imp or improving their chances um, to get a job further on if they're considering your profession. Mm -hmm. So, for example, any internships to take, extracurriculars, et cetera. Yeah, I definitely think one of the things that surprised me most about law school recruiting was that there is such a value placed on diverse backgrounds, not just in the ethnic or racial sense, but also in terms of what you bring to the table. Right. So mm -hmm. working at a law firm is pretty standard. Like if somebody works at a law firm all through high school and all through, you know, undergrad and then applies to law school, that's a pretty typical background. I think, you know, regardless of what profession you go into, but specifically for law, having diverse experiences that really change your mindset and challenge your perspective really helps. Like I, I remember one of the most random things I did when I was an undergrad was I worked as a research intern for an institution that did research on Australia and New Zealand and their politics and government. And like, I'm not really interested in moving to Australia or New Zealand. Like I just know random facts about their politics and government, but every single law school interview I had and job interviews that I had after the fact asked me about that. And it was like, why did you do this? Like, what did you learn? And I think really what it puts forth for people to look at is that you know something and you are involved in things that are diverse and different. So I definitely think to improve your chances, like have those diverse experiences. I mean, at the end of the day, like I think the motto both pre-law school and in law school is literally just go for it and see what happens. I think being open to new experiences and stepping out of whatever kind of preset plan you think you have for yourself can be so effective. And so I think um, effective, it just generally mm -hmm. for your law school and, and after the fact as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about the process of getting into law school um, and also the process of choosing a law school that suits you best? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of getting into law school, the two most important things are your LSAT and your GPA. Um, I think the LSAT is one of those things that you just need to take it and get it over with. Um, most people take it more than once, um, at least I did. And I think that really helped me to just like get rid of the nerves that appeared during that first round. Um, and then obviously your GPA um, from your undergraduate degree also um, plays a role. Uh, I think the in terms of law school admissions, one of the things that's I think quite unfortunate is that in a lot of ways it is a numbers game. So your numbers really determine whether you get in or not. Um, but choosing a law school, I think, is a lot more fun because there's a lot more latitude there. 
um, one of the things that I would definitely suggest people do is really take a look at what things your law school is offering. Um, a lot of people are tied to this idea that I can only go to the top 14 law schools or the top 20 law schools. And, you know, mm -hmm. to each his own. But I definitely think that really looking if that law school provides things you're interested in. Like if you're interested in human rights, see if they have a human rights program. Do they have a clinic? Do they have specific classes that you are interested in? And really making sure that that law school is going to be fruitful for you. I think at the mm -hmm. end of the day, this ranking thing is just so prevalent in students who are applying to law school. But once you get there, the ranking isn't going to matter. What's going to matter is what that law school offers that's going to make your experience productive. Um, and I think kind of separating yourself from the idea that like, oh, this isn't the Harvard or Yales of the world. And you know what? There are so many people who went to schools that are not Harvard and Yale and are successful, happy people who are really passionate about the work they do. So mm -hmm. I definitely say that's my my top two pieces of advice there. What are your ne next steps currently within um, your career? Next steps? Oh, that's um, that's interesting. <laughs> I uh. I don't know. I mean, I think one of my big things that if you had asked me maybe eight years ago, I would have been like, of course, I can't be this like laissez faire and just like letting things happen as they come. Mm -hmm. um, but now I think in a lot of ways, I've become much more chill um, and just letting experiences come and really absorbing those experiences with an open mind. Um, so post law school, I'm interested either going into the private sector with a heavy pro bono practice that focuses on the issues I'm passionate about, um, or moving into perhaps a public interest role. Um, I think if I were to go the public interest route, I'm really interested in starting my career in the criminal justice space, just because there's so much there, I think that can be worked on, especially in Texas and the South more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely think those are kind of the two main avenues. But regardless of what I do, I know that my goal is to, in some capacity, be involved in the, in the issues I'm, I'm passionate about. Even in private practice, there's a huge capacity for pro bono. And I really want to make sure that I really exercise that um, and get to do things that matter to me and the things that actually brought me to law school in the first place. So we're almost at the end of our show. We have about five minutes, but I want to get two more things from you. So can you tell us about your work at the um, Muslim American Muslim Bar Association? Um, and then after that, can you tell us how you manage your time? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Um, fun things. I love talking about those two things. Okay, cool. Um, so in terms of the American Muslim Bar Association, it is I don't know, it's, it's a new organization, but it's one of the ones I'm most passionate about. Um, like when I get an assignment or I get something to do for that, I kind of drop all my schoolwork and my work, you know, assignments. And I'm like, I got to do this first. Mm -hmm. And the reason I love it so much is because it's this gathering of Shia lawyers and other minority lawyers as well. And it's focused on the principles from the Ahlubit that I think I informally was using to guide my career pre um, getting involved with this and it really brings those things to life in so many different ways like there's education there's advocacy there's policy there's all these different things that we're able to do because we brought together the resources of shia lawyers across this country and are really using their talents to be able to do this work that's so important and i i kind of um we were in one of our meetings recently and i and i made a very dated reference and i'll tell you what it is and you know your viewers can laugh at me but um in homecoming king i remember hassan minhaj was uh, he was making a statement about how our parents came here to survive but this new generation is here to thrive and i think in a lot of ways like the work we're doing with amba really reflects that in the sense that you know she has have been here for generations now it's time for us to really make sure that our voice is heard politically mm -hmm. in the legal sphere and just making sure that our rights are protected so for example one of the big things we're working on right now is a case dealing with the sanctions that have been put on iran specifically the al mustafa university complex and how that's affecting students who went there from the U.S. and who are U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in the past, this is the kind of thing that the community would gripe about, but there really wouldn't be concrete action. in the legal system mm -hmm. to deal with it. 
Um, and now that Ambi's kind of come on the scene, we're able to really tackle that uh, right, you know, on on the front end. And I think that sort of work is just a good precursor to how Shias are now going to be assertive and be protected in the future, hopefully through this organization and, and other organizations that have done and are doing great work. Inshallah, that's incredible. Um, it, it, there's so much to it. And I think it's the it's like never too late, but it should have been done sooner, you know? Yeah. Uh, so this is the work that needs to be out there and needs to be done. Um, and how do you manage your time in the last two minutes? <laughs> well, I don't get paid to say this, but Google Calendar, like I have no other, I, I, there's no other way I could do it. Like I am, everything is color coded. And like, as soon as somebody sets up a meeting with me, I like immediately will like put it in the calendar and like send them mm -hmm. an invite. And that is how I have always managed my time. And like, even more so now when everything's virtual and everybody's requesting virtual meetings, I'm like, let me just get it on the calendar. Um, so definitely just being on top of it in terms of knowing when my deadlines are, putting all of that into the calendar. Um, I joke, like I open my Google calendar more than I open my actual email because I'm always <laughs> looking at like, what's next? What do I have to do? Um, it's just being on top of it. I think a lot, you know, besides Google calendar, one thing I'll say is like the fact that I'm so passionate about what I'm doing really allows me to be on top of my work. If I didn't care, I very likely would have just procrastinated it and let it fall to the wayside. Um, but I think the fact that I really do love what I do um, helps me to, to stay on top of it sometimes, most times, I guess. And you mentioned um, that you have virtual meetings all day. Are you in your hijab all day? Just in case. <laughs> I'm when I'm feeling real lazy, I'm like, I'm just going to do a no video meeting today. And I'm mm. like, oh, my internet connection is weak or whatever. And I just kind of <laughs> like sit there without a hijab. So sometimes I'll cheat, but most times I sit literally like this at this yeah. desk all day, every day. Just all day. Well, props to you and everyone else who is going through this virtual world um, right now. Uh, thank you so much, Nsia, for all of your amazing advice, for your insight, and for giving us a look at into your work and what law school has to offer. No, thank you for having me. It was really nice to talk to you. Please tune in every week on YouTube to hear all of our future shows. On next week's show, we have Community Voice, um, where we'll be hearing from the Shia Racial Justice Coalition. If you have any questions for our speakers, current speaker or prior speakers, just check out the Inspire platform on the Emoja app where you can actually ask our speakers any questions you want previously, uh, prior to the show, sorry. Um, you were just listening to the Umentor Talk Show. If you missed this or future shows, you can always hear the replay on the Umentor website under prior talk shows. And you can also listen in to the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Emoji Outreach Foundation, uniting and empowering the Shia community.